Good morning. I love that intro. It is so awesome. It's about as good, almost as good as how we started today with a little Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I don't know if you've got any Trans-Siberian fans, uh, but that's what you experienced. Um, that's what that was, is Trans-Siberian. Our team is so incredible, they can actually pull it off. I did that with a kazoo once, and I... <laughs> It wasn't nearly as moving. So, oh, what fun. This whole series is about reclaiming the Mary and Merry Christmas. I don't know about you, but there was this ancient concept called the mall. And I remember growing up going to it. And uh, though it's kind of passing away now with Amazon, um, this idea of the mall kind of stuck out. I remember walking through the mall, and there was always the middle section in between the stores. And there were always a group of men sitting around those chairs. This is kind of before the cell phone. So they just sat there with like this, like, PTSD kind of look on their face. They weren't talking to one another. They just kind of had sunken into the chair, and it looked like they'd given up on life. And I never understood that. I, was, I would walk by and be like, Mom, what's wrong with those men? And they're like, they've been shopping, honey. That's what's wrong with them. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I hope that never happens to me. And, and now as a grown man, I, I find myself relating to them. There's something about shopping that stresses me out. And maybe some of you are like my daughter and you live to shop. Like that is your like mission in life and you love it. But for me, I walk into stores at holiday and my blood pressure climbs. I start sweating. I feel like my, I get anxious. And the entire time I'm looking for the exit, you know, because in case a fire alarm happens, I need to know how to get out of this place that I'm in the midst of. Because the reality is, is that in the holiday season, it may not be shopping for you, but the chances are there is something this holiday season and every holiday season that brings stress in your life. For me, it's shopping. For you, it may be family. It may be travel. It may be getting all the kids ready, put them in a van and transport them across the state or across the region. Or it may be it's dealing with a, a tragedy that holiday seasons have a kind of a natural way of reminding us of a loved one that's no longer here, that there's just stress and pressure there's, that's always present in the holiday seasons as we're giving out presents, right? And one of the things that we talked about last week, if kind of reclaiming the Merry and Merry Christmas, was learning how to deal with difficult, the difficult people that sit across the table from us, that we all have a Cousin Eddie, and chances are, if you don't have a Cousin Eddie in your family, that you might be Cousin Eddie to your family, right? And that, but there's not just those difficult people. I think that stress and pressure goes along with the holiday season, too. And it has a very easy way of robbing us of the Merry and Merry Christmas. And what I want to do is I want to take you to the first Christmas story and look at a moment in the first Christmas story with fresh eyes. Because oftentimes we, we look back and we reflect on the Christmas story we've heard so many times before. Even if you didn't grow up in church, chances are you watched Charlie Brown and you got some part of the Christmas story. But the reality is, is that the Christmas story played out in real time. And if you're willing to kind of step into the Christmas story with me and let's walk through it real time, I think what you'll find is that the first Christmas had a lot of pressure and stress too. It turns out that's the way it's been for a long time. And what we see one of the characters in the Christmas story do, specifically Joseph, I think gives us some insight to how we can step into Christmas season, how we can step into this holiday season and not be crushed by the pressure that often comes with it. 
In fact, I believe by studying Joseph and what he does that you can find that just like it happened to him, that the stress of the holiday season can actually bring out the best of you, which is what happens to Joseph. Jason referenced the Encounter Church app uh, during the welcome, and I would encourage you if you haven't downloaded it to go ahead and download it. It takes just a few minutes. It's encounterchurch.com forward slash app. It's free. Um, and in it will be the message notes. And there'll be a couple things I referenced today that'll be inside the message notes. Um, and if you don't have it, if you don't have a uh, physical Bible, we'd love to give you one. But we've kind of put everything into the message notes for you. And it'll also be on the screens with me. Uh, the book that I want to kind of dive into is the first book in the New Testament. It's called the book of Matthew. And Matthew, just to give you a 30-second overview, Matthew's written by a guy named Matthew, who was one of the original 12 followers of Jesus. And Matthew does what a lot of biographers do. Um, I'm right now working through Walter Isaacson's Leonardo da Vinci biography. I love biographies. I read biographies all the time. And one of the things that's always fascinating about biographies is they always start at the beginning, right? So biographers oftentimes, uh, whether it's Jeff Bezos right now who's getting a lot of attention or Steve Jobs in the last 10 years or... Um, Alexander Hamilton with the play. There's, what tends to happen is people notice the extraordinary, and, and then they start to try to figure out where the source of the extraordinary came from. So oftentimes, they'll go back to the beginning of their life, and they'll, they'll explain where they were born, what they grew up in, what their parents were like, their grandparents. There's this kind of typical kind of pattern to biographies. And, and the same thing happens to Jesus. They're like, Jesus is extraordinary. We've never met or seen anyone like this. He dies, and then he comes back from the dead. Like, that's not normal. And so some biographers set out on a journey to try to reclaim and to kind of figure out what made him extraordinary. And so what happens is in the midst of that search and that journey, they discover his birth story, which we celebrate every year called Christmas. And it's in Matthew and Luke specifically that there is an emphasis, because both were historians, both were diving into the details, and Matthew focuses in on Joseph, and Luke focuses in on Mary, and most likely it's because of their ability to interview and their research. And so Matthew gives you this unique perspective, and one other thing about Matthew that's important is that Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, so it's a very Jewish book. When you read it, there's a lot of Jewish themes, there's a lot of almost a Jewish insider knowledge that's being played out. And so Matthew writes specifically for a group of people out of what he's done in his study. And what he finds in the study of Jesus is <clears throat> and unfolds is this really incredible story that when you go real time, it's quite scandalous and surprising. So what happens is Mary... Um, an angel visits her and says, you're going to give birth to a baby boy. This is going to be the most incredible baby boy who has ever lived. And she says, I'm 14. I'm not married. I've never known a man that way. I don't, don't understand how this is going to happen. And, and the angel replies, well, God is bigger than you, and he has a plan. And so she's naturally freaked out. She's also engaged to a man named Joseph. Now, engagement back then is a little different than now. Engagement was a highly formalized process. The way it worked was we, they didn't date. Oftentimes, they had arranged marriages. And so the way they would set it up is that you would arrange a marriage between your son or your daughter, and they would go into this period of time that was an engagement period, and it was to give them essentially an, an entire year of dating to prepare them to get married. 
But this, this period of time was really strict. Um, you, you weren't living together. You were not physically interacting with one another. This was all about getting to, one, getting to know one another, families getting to know one another. And, but it was formalized. And so to actually break an engagement, you had to get a divorce. So it was pretty intense. So Mary, 14, is engaged to what probably is Joseph, who was 18 years old at the time based on current kind of common Jewish practices of the day. And she finds out she gets pregnant, and she goes away to her cousin Elizabeth for three months. Joseph does not see her for three months. In verse 18 of chapter 1, and this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, before they got married, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So imagine, you're Joseph, your fiancé, your fiancé, who's been gone for three months, shows back up. And she hasn't just gained a little bit of weight, right? She's pregnant. What do you do if you're Joseph? I mean, imagine the emotions and the conversation and the, the betrayal. He knows it's not his child. And, and I recognize, I, I want to be sensitive because I, I know that many of us grew up in traditions where Mary is respected and she should be. But you have to realize that you only have that perspective in history looking back. This is playing out in real time. Joseph's fiance has been gone for three months, and she walks back into his life, and she's pregnant. The baby bump is there, and there's no denying it. And what happens is it says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is why this passage is there. Joseph's like, this is not my child. This is obviously someone else's child, and this is a deal breaker. We're done. This 14-year-old girl, had, she, had this been made known public, because we can tell it's still private at this point, she would have been ridiculed, and within Joseph's rights would have been to stone her, to kill her for the infidelity. It wasn't common practice, but the law allowed it. So this is the reality of the first Christmas story. So with all that said, that's a little stressful. That's not sitting in the mall waiting for your significant other to be done with Macy's. That's my whole life that I thought was planned out in front of me just got upended because my unfaithful fiance just showed back up in my life. And the audacity, right? I don't want to sound sacrilegious, but I'm telling you, the idea of, no, don't worry, the baby, it belongs to God, went over just as well then as it would today, right? Like, it wouldn't have gone over well that day, and it wouldn't go over well today if it happened to you either. That's not normal. That's strange. And be like, for real, you couldn't come up with a better excuse than that? Like, it doesn't fly. And so what happens? What do we see Joseph do in these few verses? If you're willing to kind of dig into the language and pay attention and go real time, not just reflect on it, what you see is a series of steps that you and I can do. 
The first is, verse 19, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet he did not want to expose her to the public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. There's actually two different words. This is, Matthew writes this original letter 2000, almost 2,000 years ago in Greek. And he uses two different words for thinking and reflecting. And it's to, to communicate something. He's showing the tension. See, what Joseph does, the first thing that Joseph, Joseph does is he takes a step back. And he gets a little bit of distance. And the reason we know that is because the, the, the way Matthew describes the way uh, Joseph is processing. It says that he wants to do what's right. It says he's faithful to the law. What do you do if you're faithful to the law and your fiance is pregnant with someone else's baby? Well, you legally, you divorce her. But he doesn't want to ruin her. He knows if he goes in front of the public and he makes this a court case and everyone in the community hears about it, this 14-year-old girl that he cares about, her life is ruined. She could even die. Her father or Joseph could demand her death. Like, this is the culture. And Joseph takes a step back and he weighs, I want to do what's right, but I don't want to ruin her. I want to do what's right, but I don't want to be rash. In the midst of incredible pressure and stress, he takes a step back to, to work through his options and his choices. The reason we know this is if you continue, it says, but after he had considered this, considered what? How to be right, but not ruin her. After he's considered the options from taking a step back, he does another thing that shows us he's taken a step back. In verse 20, it says, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Well, that's fascinating. Mary doesn't know the decision yet. She doesn't know what he's wrestled through. She doesn't know that he's been struggling with how to do what's right without ruining her. And what does he do? He sleeps on it. He hasn't had the conversation yet. He goes to bed. Because he's spatially, relationally, emotionally disconnected himself from the situation. He takes a step back. And by doing so, it gives him an ability to work through the problem that had he stayed in the situation, he might not have came to the same part of clarity. Uh, I read a story recently about Todd Orr, who last year, um, Todd Orr is an outdoor enthusiast. He owns a uh, kind of a really cool knife shop in Montana, and he also works at Gallatin National Forest in Montana. And uh, so he was, it was elk season was coming in, and so he's wanting to scout out some locations for elk. So he set off at 4 a.m. He had a 20-mile hike, and he wanted to get up into the mountains, 10,000 feet up, um, before the elk really could kind of start to wander, so he could really have scouted well. So naturally, none of his friends said yes to that phone call, Right, of waking up at 4 a.m. and hiking 20 miles up to 10,000 feet in the mountains of Montana. And so he goes alone. It's about daybreak. So about two to three hours into his hike, the sun is starting to come up and he comes into an open grove. And there on the other side of the grove is a mama bear with her cubs. Well, Todd is a smart man, so he doesn't move. But he notices that the bear looks at him. So he doesn't stand still. About 30 seconds pass away and the bear walks off with her cubs and then he stays 
still for another 30 seconds. It's quiet. He starts walking. He's okay. And all of a sudden, he hears this loud, crashing, rushing sound behind him. And he turns around. About time he turns around, there is the mama bear running about full speed, which is about 40 miles per hour. Okay, Grizzlies can run. So this grizzly is running 40 miles per hour straight at him. He's trying to pull out his bear spray, and he goes to spray it, but the bear has so much momentum, she runs straight through the cloud, and she lands on top of him. He grabs his head, he interlocks, because if you ever get attacked by a bear, you want to protect your vital organs, FYI, right? And so you do this, and you go down into a ball, and you protect your neck and your face and your throat, because bears have sharp claws and teeth, oh my, right? And the bear starts to just attack him. He's, he describes it like a sledgehammer with teeth, with every bite. She's ripping his back, his arms, because he's protecting everything. She's gashing his head. And after what felt like an eternity, it got silent again. And she was done. He lays there. She walks off. And after she'd, she'd left, he got back up and says, I've got to hike back to my car to drive myself to the hospital. So about 10 minutes into the hike, back to his car, he hears a sound and he turns around again. And there she is again. She attacks him the second time. He does the exact same thing, goes back in the fetal position. The entire time that he's trying to protect vital organs and keeping his body shifted while she's standing on top of him, clawing and ripping and biting and attacking even more. He describes the smell that he can smell of the mama bear because she's just inches from the back of his neck. And he says she stops. And as she stops, she breathes for about 10 seconds onto his spine. He's like, you could feel, he's like my entire body, I could just feel her breathing on me. And then she walked away again. He hobbled the miles back down the mountain, got into his car, drove to the hospital. They found 27 bite lash marks in his right arm alone. He had broken ribs, broken arms. He he had muscles that were shredded. After three months of physical therapy, he has about 90% of his left arm. But what's fascinating is when you read the interview, what, what stands out about this interview is how calm Todd stays the entire time. And when you read his description about how she was breathing on his neck and how he kept repositioning his arms to protect his vital organs, what happened is this same story popped in my mind. I was like, Todd was doing exactly what we see Joseph do. It, it wasn't a bear attack, but it was a different type of emotional attack. Todd had taken a step back mentally, emotionally, and had been able to stay cool in a very stressful situation. And by staying cool, remaining in control, because he had taken a step back, he stayed alive which is this first thing that Joseph does. By taking a step back, when you and I find ourselves in these stressful, pressing moments, by getting some distance, even if it's just a little bit of distance, what you'll find is that stressful moment where that conversation could have quickly turned into to deep-seated conflict, where things would have been said that should have never been said, just by being able to step back a few and to get some breathing room. We're able to disconnect from the pressure and the stress. We can start to reclaim our mental processing. We can start to see through kind of the emotion of the moment and the pressure of the moment and actually start to reflect in a way that's helpful, not harmful. 
It, it's, it's even as something simple as what some of us, I know, have habits of doing, of carving out your morning block 15 minutes or in the evening and just kind of pulling away from the craziness of kids, the craziness of work, craziness of life, and just having a few moments of processing through your day, processing through the, the things that happened the previous day or what happened that, that evening, or using the car ride home or the train ride home to work through some of the emotional things that happen so that you don't lash out, so that you don't respond harmfully. Or maybe it's you just rediscovering the art of the angry unsent letter. Abraham Lincoln, Dwight Eisenhower, um, a lot of historical figures would write letters where they would just vent. And then they would fold it up and they would stick it in their drawer and they would never send it. Right? It was a whole lot easier to, to, to kind of not fall into the trap of hitting send when it was an email. Right, Because now it's really easy to get that email, to get that text message, and to fire off. And you see it, right? You see the dot, dot, dot. And you know they're tapping. And you're like, oh, oh, they better. They better. Right? But by taking a step back and saying, I don't have to respond in this moment because anything coming out of me will only be hurtful, not helpful. And that there is still an art and a beauty and a strength in the unsent email and the unsent text and, and the unsent letter of carving out those times to reflect and to process and to unwind, there is something to be said for what we see Joseph do, of sleeping on it, to saying, hey, I know that we just had this tense discussion. I know you want to talk about travel for the season and your mom and what she said and the guilt that she's put on you, but like, let's just, can we sleep on it and talk about it tomorrow? Hey, tomorrow after kids go to bed, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 8 p.m., whatever, you carve out a time and a space, right? Maybe it's with you and your teenager, and you say, hey, can we just sleep on this? And tomorrow, let's sit down right after dinner, and let's talk about it. And you have that appointed time, and you have that carved out space, but you have breathing room. So that you don't come in all emotionally rash and rushing and harmful. But by taking that step back, you're able to rehearse what you want to say. You're able to practice what you're going to do. And you come into the situation of high pressure and stress in control, knowing the outcome you want to make. In fact, this is how any major career or any major high pressure stress job plays out. People who do high pressure, life essential jobs, they practice it when the pressure is not on behind the scenes long before they show up in the high pressure setting. If you're in the medical field, you know that. If you're in military, you know that, right? On the way here this morning, I rode by a house where fire trucks were outside of. I'm so grateful that those people practice their job long before they have to step into their job. And it's the same way when you and I are willing to rehearse the difficult conversations, rehearse and to process those difficult moments, we step back into those moments a whole lot better. But Joseph doesn't just take a step back. I think there's something a little bit more in what happens with the angel. And I recognize for some of you, you're processing through faith and an angel visitation and a supernatural birth. All of this is a little strange to you. And can I just acknowledge it is strange. It's not normal. It is not natural. Okay? That's okay. But what we see playing out in this is some steps that I think apply no matter where you are in the journey. But 
If you press into Joseph and the dream, it's not the dream that, that stood out to me. What stood out is the content of the dream. And the content of the dream, I think, gives us the second step, the crucial step to navigating those high-press, stressful moments that it can actually become your best moment. It's that when the angel shows up, right, in verse 20, um, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why does he say do not be afraid to take home Mary as your wife? Because everyone will think it's his baby. So this man who's a person of integrity and character knows that for the next six months, they're going to live with the whispers of shame and people talking about whose baby this is. And, and so the angel's speaking to him emotionally, but there's a lot more than just him speaking to this one concern Joseph has. He says, right, she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Now, in the midst of all that, remember, this isn't the original letter was written to a Jewish audience. And for the original Jewish audience, this would have been glaring to them. We're on kind of for us today, most of us wouldn't catch it. First of all, he starts the, the dream with Joseph, son of David. Son of David is a loaded term. In fact, this is the only time Joseph is the only one who gets son of David. The only other time you see son of David is specifically in reference to Jesus. Jesus is the only one in the entire New Testament called the son of David. Why is the son of David reference used here? It's because he's speaking to Joseph out of what Joseph views as authority. What Joseph is grounded in. Son of David is a loaded Old Testament term. Because remember, the Christian Bible is comprised of two major sections. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is the Jewish scriptures. And so when he says son of David, this loaded phrase would have instantly triggered a lot for Joseph. But then he keeps going. He says he will rescue them, his people from their sins. That is a reference to Psalm 139. One, Psalm 130, verse 9. So he's quoting a passage in Psalm 130. Then he goes on and he says that his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Well, that's a direct reference in the virgin shall give birth to a son. That's a direct reference to Isaiah 7, verse 14. So in the course of a few sentences, the angel quotes three specific Jewish contexts of loaded phrases. Son of David, Psalm 130, and Isaiah. Now, you may think, that's not very strange, but if you study every single angel visitation in the old and new, what you'll find is this is unique. No angel ever shows up speaking verses from Scripture. The only time an angel shows up and speaks verses from Scripture is in this moment right here. And I think the reason the angel shows up and speaks these references is because Joseph's in a high-pressure situation. And last night, I had some crazy dreams. I can drink orange juice. I don't know about you. I can drink orange juice or fruit juice, and I, I have some crazy, crazy dreams. I'm like, was there something in that juice? Because that was drug-induced. I mean, it's like bizarre. Wake up. Like, does that, do I need to see a counselor because of what I just went through in my brain? I mean, and so like Joseph could have easily dismissed, even though dreams were kind of a big deal in this ancient context, Joseph could have dismissed the dream. But Joseph's authority 
what he's grounded in, what he's rooted in, is what the angel says. And I think that is what sways Joseph. And it's this second thing. Joseph doesn't just take a step back. Joseph also stays grounded and rooted in what recharges him and what refuels him, what gives him strength, what gives him source and supply. It's this moment that I believe gives Joseph the strength to navigate the moments ahead. All the ridicule of walking through town and everybody being like, they're not married yet, but she's pregnant. That happened. People talk. I don't understand why people talk, but people talk, right? Like the favorite conversation that people love to have is about someone else. Did you hear? Did you know? I'm like, you know what? Go live a life that's a little bit more interesting. You won't have to talk about other people's lives. Right? Sorry. And, and so this is, but Joseph knows this is how people are. He knows they're talking about him and they're talking about Mary and all the things they did. And so this, this moment, what the angel gives him is a source of strength and supply and of refueling and recharging. Because the scriptures aren't just information. They're, they're conduits that bring transformation. They bring hope. They bring help. They bring life. And this is what the, the angel is giving him. The angel is giving him this reconnection to life and to supply. And I recognize for some of us that for you and your faith, right? The scriptures, the, ref, the Bible, like there's a source of strength for you. But sometimes the Bible can be overwhelming. Right? The Bible is the only book you will read that is disconnected geographically and culturally by thousands of years. No other book that you will read this entire year, unless you're an ancient Greek, like kind of, or Latin professor. There are no other books you will read this year or next year or the year after for the rest of your life that is this culturally, geographically, historically disconnected from your present context. You may read these novels about men and women in the 1800s. You may read history books about the American Revolution, but you're not reading ancient Greek and Roman text. But when you read the Bible, you are. And that disconnect is often the reason that many people will say to me, I struggle to understand it. It doesn't make sense. And so here's what we've done for you. We want to we kind of give you an opportunity to connect and find the same strength that Joseph found. And that in the, in the app, you'll see Advent Reading Plan. There's a church that we have a, a relationship with. Their staff serves as mentors for us. And, and they have created a, a devotional Advent Reading Plan that's wonderful, that's simple to read. And, and I would encourage you, if you've never spent time reading the Bible, take advantage of this Christmas season it's really simple. It'll take about five, six minutes a day. It'll be in the app for you, Advent Reading Plan. And there's a, kind of an inspirational thought with each day. And uh, for some of you, I recognize that you're, not, you're, you're exploring faith. You're not interested or you're not sure what you believe. But this same principle applies to you too. Maybe faith isn't that source of connection and strength for you, but all of us are emotionally decharging every single day. And when we go into high-pressure situations and stressful situations, we have to step into recharging more. For some of you, recharging may be exercise. For some of you, recharging may be sleep, right? For some of you, recharging may be reading. It may be like, Todd, 
hiking in the woods, preferably not around bears, right? I mean, there may be some, a hobby that you have, something that you do, those moments. But in those high-pressure, stressful situations, take a step back and step into those situations and practice the disciplines that recharge you. Because stepping back is not enough. You have to make sure that when you step back, you're staying grounded and rooted. And that you're getting that recharge, you're getting that flow. And by doing that, what happens is that you can step back into those stressful situations, step back in those high-pressure situations, and you're bringing the best of you, not the rest of you. And so you step in with the best of you because you've stepped back, you've stayed grounded, you're recharged, and now you can have the difficult conversation with your spouse or your child or your coworker or deal with the, the deadline that's looming before the end of the year with all the holiday pressures that come with it or the gifts that you have to buy or the lines you have to stand in. Those, you come back and it's the best of you. And, and so know what recharges you. It's essential. It's critical for the best of you to show up in those stressful situations. But in the midst of all that, I don't want you to lose sight of the bigger headline of Christmas. So um, the, the number one restaurant, there's been this phenomenal restaurant, this phenomenon that's happened in London over the course of this year. The Shed at Dulwich is, and it began, and it opened up in April of 2017. London is a massive city, right? I mean, it's huge. And so London's known for its, I mean, it is one of those cosmopolitan cities around the world. And it opens in April, and by November, it is the number one restaurant in all of London, right? Notice, 18,092 restaurants in London, and it is number one. It's very nice. Hey, don't let the shed put you off. I put the website in the link because this is really quirky. They, they have, uh, their menu is like love and lust, right? I mean, they, the, the strangeness of the titles, they put pictures in there. And so the, the guy who starts this restaurant is telling the story, and he talks about in April how they're at 18,092. At the time, there's only, I think, only 12,000 in the registry. And so they're at the very bottom. And after a couple months, it's an appointment-only restaurant. After a couple months, people are calling, trying to get a reservation. It's like, sorry, we're booked for the next four months out. Uh, a few months by the summer, people are showing up on the street trying to find the restaurant so that they can get a reservation. People are calling the restaurant, pitching these impassioned pleas, like, this is my girlfriend. She, she, I want to propose to her, and you're the most like elegant, like most like premier restaurant in all of London, and you could help us have a dynamic start to a dynamic relationship. And restaurant like salesmen are showing up trying to push what they have that's the latest and the greatest and the best. And so people are by by November, the phone, they're getting over 140 phone calls a week. And it's constantly booked up. Nobody can get a spot. But here's the problem. The shed at Dulwich, let me give you a picture of what the restaurant looks like. That is the shed at Dulwich. The number one restaurant in all of London was not even a restaurant. It was a hoax. They, this guy specifically, Uba Butler, was a freelance writer and back in April decided, you know what? I've been hired to write reviews for restaurants before. I wonder what if, what if we could create the number one restaurant in all of London and it was never even real? And by November, 
He had. People were calling him, begging him, offering him money to come and eat at his restaurant. The website that's in your app, all the pictures that you'll see of food later when you look, none of it's real except for the egg. But the egg, if you look closely, is actually resting on his foot in the picture. All of this to become the number one restaurant in London in the course of about eight months. Now, here's the reality that many of us maybe grew up and we've treated the Christmas story the way we look at the story of the shed at Dulwich. It's a great story. It's novel. But the most powerful, powerful message, the headline of Christmas is not that some large man breaks and entering into your home and leaves you gifts. That's breaking a law. The headline of Christmas is that what the angel says to Joseph is that Emmanuel, God with us, and that many of us can fall into the trap in the midst of high pressure, high stress situations, or just life in general, and we can treat the Christmas story as a what if, but it's really meant to be a what then. What then would you do if you knew God was for you? What then would you do if you knew God was with you? How would you walk through this season of financial stress? How would you walk through the season of relational stress if you knew God was with you and God was for you? Not it, it was a what if, but it was a what then. And that the headline of Christmas is it is not a hoax. It is that God is here with us. In the best moments of our life, and in the worst moments of our life, he's present. And that that present, his presence, is the greatest present in the holiday season. That the headline of Christmas is that we have not bought into a hoax or just a really good story that's filled with a lot of wonderful what-ifs. But it's that we've bought into a story, the greatest story, that is not a what if, it's a what then. That God is with us and for us, and that if we know that, that when we take that step back and we choose to stay rooted and grounded, we really can step back into those pressures, step back into those stresses, and not just bring the best of us, but bring Him with us 